and uh, turn with me to the book of Titus. We're in a series going through that book. And uh, why do we go through books of the Bible? Well, it's because of our conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm not the Word of God. You're not the Word of God. Our opinions are not the Word of God. The Word of God is the Bible. And it is a perfect book. God has given us His book, His Word, His truth. It's a final book. This is His revelation to us. It contains all the things we need to know and principles by which we must live. And it points to Jesus and salvation and what it really is. Not your idea, not your feelings, not your thoughts about it, but God's. We've got to get this right. And so we go through it because we want to know what He has to say. And it uh, takes us through that way. When you go through a book of the Bible, you get it from verse 1 all the way down to the end of it, and you kind of have a grasp of what it means. Do you know it perfectly? No, and neither do I. But we're learning and we're growing, and every year that goes by, we learn a little bit more about the Word of God. We feed upon the Word of God, and we also, when we do this, are kind of declaring to our congregation and anyone who watches that the Word of God is primary in our church. The Word of God is really what it is all about, knowing what God says and then applying it to our lives. It nourishes us, it feeds us, it encourages us, sometimes it rebukes us, but it's always done in love as God has given us this perfect word as an aspect and expression of his love and his mercy and his grace. It also means that you don't have to worry about your pastor pacing the floor on Saturday night going, what am I going to preach? I've already preached on prayer. I've already preached on love. I've already... And if you do topical stuff, trust me, that's what they do. But when you go verse by verse through the Word of God, I know as soon as I finish this message where I'm going next. And that way you've got a chance to get in it and to pray over it and to study it and then present it to the Word of God. So it's a little bit beneficial to me to be able to do that, but it's a lot beneficial to you, and it brings glory and honor to the Lord. So we've worked our way through this. This will be, uh, what, the third message in this, and we looked at the introduction of Titus, and we saw so much in there. And then we looked last week at how God wants the church organized, and uh, we talked about our elders, and we even had them up here, and we prayed for them and prayed for their family. Now we're going to find what Paul says when he tells Titus, you go to Crete, that island nation there, and establish churches and set up the elders as leaders in the church. Now why would Paul think that that was so important? And I think sometimes we miss the purpose of church. We're not a community center. We want to reach out to our community. We want to be involved, but that's not really why we're here. That's not the purpose of it. Sometimes we think about being in church because, well, that's where my friends go, and I like the people there, and I hope you have friends here. I hope you make friends here, and I hope that you do like the people here because we certainly do love you. But is that the real purpose of the church? Well, you can do that at numerous other organizational meetings that may or may not be Christian, uh, and, and you can do those same things. There's got to be something more than that. Some churches have the idea now, well, we've got to entertain them. And what they do is they look at uh, what the music industry does, rock and country stars, and they say, we've got to do that in the church so we can pe keep people engaged. Well, I'm not opposed to people being engaged, and I'm not opposed to having quality music that ministers to people and touches their hearts. That's fine. 
But is that really the goal to entertain and keep people engaged? I hope we do that, but that's not really the goal. There's a higher calling. There is a God who created you and who created everything in the universe, including this world. And there's a God who set up certain laws, certain rules, and he has the right to do that. And as human beings, we, and it goes way back to the Garden of Eden, we decided we wanted our own way, our own rules. We can handle this, and we can go outside of God, away from God, and we can actually violate what God says, and we're going to be okay, we think. And God says that because you have broken my law, because you have violated my will and my principles, there's a consequence, a penalty for that. And the penalty for that is an eternity in hell. That's a horrible, horrible thing to think about. But the same God who instituted that law and the same God who instituted the punishment and he meant it is also the God that says, but you can't do anything about that because you can't change yourself any more than a leopard could change his spots. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the God who said, you can't do anything about your problem with sin and rebellion and your nature to stray against God, but I can and I will. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to the earth. Jesus, as God in human flesh, came and lived among us, and he did it, listen to this, without sin. Let that sink in without sin. He never did anything that was wrong. He never even thought about anything that was wrong. He never had an ulterior motive. Never was deceptive. And think about this. He never forgot to do what was right. Sometimes I sin because I just wasn't thinking. And I forgot. Oh Lord, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about that. And that's the problem. Well, Jesus did all of that for me and for you so that when he went to the cross to die for us, he literally and actually paid the debt for our sins. And the wrath of God was poured out upon his own son in your place. That's the message and theme of the Bible, isn't it? Jesus is the substitute for sinners dying in our place. And then the Bible tells us that this God-man who died on the cross and suffered the innocent for the guilty was raised up on the third day. Can you imagine what it must have been like for those Roman soldiers standing outside the tomb and somebody goes, did you hear something? What in the world is that? And it's coming from inside the tomb. Normally you don't hear noises inside the tomb. That's where dead people are. And yet that tomb became a place of light and a place of life. And it scared them to death. Well, I reckon so. That's not supposed to happen. And Jesus came out of the tomb alive and in his body, a glorified body. And after 40 days, he ascended to heaven where he is today, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And you can imagine all of the people who have died and gone on to heaven. They're not in purgatory. They're not in some limbo place. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there they are 
standing in front of the throne of God, singing with the angels, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Can you imagine? And as they are singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And as they are singing, Alleluia to the Lord. We have the privilege when we gather as a church to join with them in singing and praising our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If there's ever a time when heaven and earth are in harmony, it's not in Washington, D.C. It's not in your neighborhood, and it's probably not even in your own house. But when we gather together like this, heaven and earth are joined together in worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And those who are saved, who have died and gone on to heaven, we miss them. We don't pray to them. We don't talk to them. We don't do any of that. They're with the Lord. They're with the Lord. But you know, one of the things we just did, we worshiped with all of heaven, giving praise and honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happened at this church, and at that church, and that church, and that church, and that church, all around the world. And there's something very holy, something very sacred, something very big, and something very powerful that's going on. And most of the time, we don't even know it because we think about everything in our context and in our situation. We joined with heaven, and we joined with all of the other true churches to give praise, glory, and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who deserves every bit of that. You may not have felt anything, but it happened. And you may not have realized all of that, but it happened. And now I pray that it'll enter into your conscious mind how big, big, and global and universal it is whenever the church gathers to worship Jesus Christ. And so that's the primary reason. There's someone bigger than us. There are some things that are bigger than us. We need to put our lives in order, put them in perspective, put our problems, all of that kind of stuff, and just with free abandon worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean there's nothing in it for us? Well, as I read what Paul said about telling Titus, set these churches up, set them in order, and ordain godly, plural leadership for them, then he goes right into something in um, verse, uh, where are we? Chapter 1, verse 10. And it starts telling us reason. He starts off with the word for. Put these elders in order for. So this is a, a reason. So why does God want us to be in a church? What's in it for us? Is there any benefit for you and for me coming together for worship? Well, there are some things that I believe these verses tell us that ought to be happening in a New Testament church. Do they happen? Sometimes. Should they happen? Yes, all the time. Do we fail to reach these goals? Of course we do. We're all sinners and we're not completely uh, sanctified. We're not everything we ought to be, but we are striving. We're working for this. And it's not so that we can be saved. It's because we are saved. God is teaching us. But let's set the bar kind of high and think about these things. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. And if you're ready for the scripture, would you say amen? For there are many insubordinate both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. 
who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Can you say, follow the money? It's always there, isn't it? Follow the money. Verse 12. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, that's a resident of Crete, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Put that on your license tag. State motto. Verse 13. This testimony is true. Let that sink in. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not lazy or greedy or gluttonous, but sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In other words, they mess up everything they touch or even think about. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess or say that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Well, I read that, and without going too much into detail, I know what I don't want to be, right? I know what I don't want to be in that because Paul is very clear on that. And those kinds of people and those kind of thoughts, uh, they're still around today. And so why do we gather as a church? Now, make no mistake, to worship the Lord on high. But are there any practical and personal benefits that kind of trickle down and shower down from that worship on each of us that make an impact upon our life? Not only does it change our eternity when we come and hear the gospel and receive it and trust the Lord, but it's supposed to, according to that last verse we read, it's supposed to change our lives because we are to be more than just people who say the right things but deny the Lord by the way that we live. The two things are supposed to come together in unity and uh, they are not even harmony because harmony... That's made by two different notes or three different notes in a chord. Uh, We're supposed to be the same note. The same note is sounded by what we say and the way that we live. No difference in those things whatsoever. So the first reason I would answer this question in the title is this. Why, Why church? Well, number one, it would be to keep your beliefs straight. There are all kinds of cults. There are all types of false thinking. There are lies. There are philosophies, all kinds of things that are out to uh, get you and to get your children. There are all kinds of things that are so easy to believe and yet they take you away from the truth of the Word of God. If nothing else, whenever you come to church, it's a reset time. You've been bombarded by news and a lot of it is fake news. You've been bombarded through our educational system that you're just an animal, that you don't really matter. You're just a mutation uh, from pond scum and all of the world and the, uh, the universe is some kind of a colossal accident that nothing from nothing equals everything. You're told that a baby in its mother's womb is not really a living creature, that it's just tissue that can be disposed of. We're told all kinds of things and it's getting worse 
and worse and worse, and let's put it this, and more and more perverse and very, very confusing. You see, if you're raised in that kind of an environment and you are told that there are no absolutes, then how do you determine what's right or wrong? Well, you really don't. You just live and make the best of it. I was uh, listening to Al Mohler on his podcast, The Briefing, and he talked the other day about how in Seattle now, as their policy, they are going to begin saying that you cannot say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 in a math class because math is oppressive, it's too absolute, and it makes people feel bad when they get the wrong answer. Well, like Chad Trench said, I hope I never am in a building that they build. Uh, Boeing is in Seattle. Whew. I hope none of those people ever make an airplane I have to fly in, right? Because math is an absolute. Now, we look at some of those kind of things and we say, well, that is silly, and it is silly. It is silly. And it's going to come around, and I mean it is really going to bite us, isn't it? This kind of stuff is sowing the seeds of destruction. Now, we may look around and say, well, I'm glad that it's not that way around here. You might be surprised if you actually knew. And you might be surprised at the things that are coming because usually states that are in the middle, in the heartland like we are, things come from the East Coast and the West Coast. I mean, we get it from both sides and it closes in on us. And we see people doing just some incredibly foolish and downright stupid things. And we look and we say, can you not figure that out? Well, they can't. They haven't been taught how to think. Because in the world in which we live and the way that it is coming along, there are many insubordinate. They look at things and they say, this has worked for thousands of years, but I ain't doing it. They come into the church and they hear teaching and they say, well, you can preach it, but I ain't doing it. And they can even have people that will confront them and they'll say, do what you want, I'm going to do what I want because that's their philosophy of life. They never come under authority. They never come under anyone's rule, not even the Lord's. They're insubordinate. It's their nature. And by the way, that's your nature too. That's the way we are. That's why we sin. We're insubordinate. We're going to do what we want to do. And then he talks about idle talkers. How many times do you hear people talking about things that they don't know what they're talking about? It's just mindless, idle chatter. On and on it goes. It's called Congress. <laughs> not too far off, is it? I may not have hit the bullseye, but I didn't miss the target, did I? All talk, politicians, all that. But you and I do that too. You and I do that as well. And we talk all the time about all the things we should do, we're going to do in one of these days, and we never get around to doing it. It's called idle talk. It wastes time, and it draws people away from what really matters. Notice that he said not both idle talkers and deceivers. Now, there's where it becomes really sinful. You see, some people are doing that, and they're talking, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they'll tell you things about God and about right and wrong and about morality and about sexuality and all of these kind of things, and they have no idea what they're talking about, and they're trying their best to deceive you with idle talk. They know it won't work. If you've got any common sense, you know what won't work. But if they can pull you away and deceive you, they get you to question the truth and then to stand firmly on quicksand. Did you get that? You're moving away from the rock of truth, 
standing firmly on quicksand and you wonder why things aren't working out. See, what Paul is talking about here is not anything that is new. This has been going on since he wrote this book and even before that. And it still continues on today. We're not all that enlightened and we're not all that better. There's a lot of idle talk and a lot of deception. And then he goes, especially those of the circumcision. What is that all about? Well, Paul is a Jew and the original early church was a Jewish church. And one of the rites of the Jews was circumcision that was commanded by God, by the way. Back in the book of Genesis, Abraham uh, went through the rite of circumcision and on through until it was commanded in the law of Moses. And it was an Old Testament mark, a physical mark, to show that you were a person of the covenant of God under the law of Moses. Now in the New Testament, that's all been fulfilled in Christ, so that's not a requirement. But there were people coming into Crete, and they were saying, well, you know, your faith in Jesus, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Hey, we're with you, buddy. We're with you. But you know what? There's some other things you don't know. And they'd put their arm around you, Gentile, Cretan, you know. And, uh, you know, you come from a pretty wicked culture, and we are the holy people, the chosen ones of God. Let me tell you some things we know that you don't know. And we'll be, begin pulling people away from grace and freedom and from the truth of the cross down to their little man-made commandments and rituals. And people still do that today. People still do that today. I know of a church where the pastor's wife said that, ladies, if you wear pants, you are perverted and you're going to hell because that's the dress of a man. Mm. Then she went on later on to say that even if you wear a skirt made out of denim, denim is the material of men's clothing, therefore that is still the dress of a man and you are going to hell. You ever heard anything like that? You ever heard people that put different regulations and rules that you go through the Bible and you try to find it? And yeah, in the Old Testament it does say that we're not supposed to cross-dress. Men are to dress like men and women are to dress like women. God wants the sexes distinct. But like J. Vernon McGee said one time, I looked one time in a store at row after row after row of women's pants and I didn't find a one I'd be caught dead in. Right? And so you think about these things that sometimes people go, well, here's the Bible, it's A. And then they go to point B that's outside of the Word of God. And if A and B are true, and they may even be a good point, then they move on to C and to D and to E. And they start adding things that are not in the Word of God. Paul says you've got to be careful about this. And it is through the preaching of the truth in the gathering of believers that our belief and our doctrine is kept in order. So that's the first purpose, to keep your beliefs straight and to counter what you hear in so many other things because people will twist Scripture and use the name of God and legalism and all of this stuff to try to get you all messed up. And they're pretty good at it, by the way. Number two, what's the second reason? To protect your family. Now, would you agree with me that the family is and has been under assault probably for at least 50 years, right? We start looking at the small moves that are made 
And uh, if you go back and you were to look at television shows from the 50s, what would you find in there? Generally intact families. And the father is usually a respected stalwart member of the family. Okay, that's the 50s. Now, what happened in the 60s? Well, it was during that time, especially the late 60s, you started seeing the absence of fathers on television programs. Did you not? And when they were there, what kind of people were they? Idiots. People to be dismissed. Corrupt. Hypocritical. Racist. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to get us to disassociate ourselves from the biblical family. Planning it in our minds. You don't have to obey your parents. You don't have to respect your father and your mother. In fact, you don't even need a father and a mother. You can be fine without it. And since then, what have we watched? Man, our families are falling apart. And it's not getting better it's getting worse. And you know what else? Listen to me. It's not hurting less as it gets more normalized. It's hurting people and it's hurting children. And it's hurting our society. And we all understand that. You say, what are you doing? Throwing rocks at me because I've been through that? No, 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 no. I'm exalting the grace of God that can forgive people like us. Like us. And he can bring beauty out of ashes. But let's never ever compromise that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then you go on down and he made them male and female and he said for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and what God has joined together let not man put asunder. We must hold that standard up high. Even if it hurts us, we must hold the standard high. Because that's what God said. That's what God said. And so we started noticing that as we moved through the 70s, that feminism, wanting to not just be equal, but wanting power, it's more of a political movement than it is an equal rights movement. It was the idea that, well, we don't really need anybody. In fact, remember the slogan? Some of you are old enough. A woman needs a man like... A fish needs a bicycle. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And so we go through all of this, and then you see the rise of other kinds of sins and perversions and everything to get us to the, uh, the point where we are today where most of us thought we would never get in our lifetime. Boy, it has happened fast, hasn't it? And when we look at that and we see that when the family is not right, I think children... You want to know why millennials and others are leaving the church in droves? I think it's because they didn't see God in the family unit. I think that any child ought to be able, ought to be able to, of course we all fail in this, but ought to be able to look at their father and get a, a picture of God, our Heavenly Father. I think that they ought to be able to look at their mother and be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, in the home, if there's anybody that's going to sacrifice anything, it's almost always mom, isn't it? 
And Jesus was a supreme sacrifice. Ladies, when you give up things for the sake of your children, when you give up what you want for the sake of your children, money, career, uh, even the last pork chop on the plate, what are you teaching your children about the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ for our sins? And what should be the atmosphere in our home? I would pray that whenever your children come home from a chaotic day at school where they've been bullied, where they've been lied to, where there's been all kinds of hurt and frustration, that when they walk through the door of your house, peace floods their soul. Safety and security. Because I think the atmosphere of the home shows us about the Holy Spirit who is the divine comforter. When you mess with the family, you mess with God's order. When you mess with God's order, you sow the wind, as the proverb says, and you reap the whirlwind. It never comes out good. It never comes out right. And it's only by the grace of God any of us can even function even close to a a, a godly way, isn't it? And so notice here that Paul said these people, these idle talkers, these deceitful people, he said their mouths must be stopped. Okay? Who subvert whole, what's it say? Households. That's the family. The devil wants to destroy your family. Now, thank God there's always hope. I don't care where your children are or what they're doing. If they're still breathing, there is still hope. And prodigals do come home. Children do return to the way that they were raised. God is still working on all of that. Thank the Lord for that. But one of the things we do as a church is try to help you protect your family. Because when the family goes, it affects everybody in the church because we're a group of families and we're a part of the family of God. It's a family situation, a family matter. And it also makes it difficult to teach the truth and the things that you believe when things aren't in order. We want to help you with that and we want to see things restored because our God is a God who restores the years that the locusts have eaten. He can bring beauty out of ashes. He can bring order out of chaos. God can do some miraculous things even when children are rebellious, even when a father is having affairs and addicted to pornography, even when parents are addicted to drugs and alcohol and those kind of things happen, God can grow some beautiful plants in some mighty strange, strange soil. And he does it for his glory and honor. We are here to try to help and try to encourage in this world that is pulling us apart. One of the things that I noticed in my grandparents' generation, there was always the pressure, stay together, stay together, stay together, stay together, stay together. By the time I came along, it was unload that turkey, get out of that thing. If you get married, you can always get out of it and all of that type of thing. The pressure was to pull apart. We're here in this wicked generation to call people back together and say, there's peace, there's order, there's structure. There's happiness. There's great joy in doing things God's way, even in the family, because there's all kinds of things trying to pull, to pull away your whole household from the things of God. Can anybody say amen to that? We know that. Number three, to keep you from becoming like the worst of your culture. Now, you can't help being like your culture. You're born in it. That's what's normal. And you do that. And not all of it's bad. 
Not all of it is bad. But there are bad things in your culture. Notice what Paul said about the people of Crete, the Cretans, right? And uh, he quotes one of their own poets, which probably if you're going to criticize somebody, you probably ought to quote one of them. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And look at verse 13. This testimony is true. You know what his point was there? You may live in Crete, but don't be like the Cretans. You may be a church in the midst of Crete, but don't be like them. And there's something about the church that counters the culture. It counters the way everything else is going because the Bible says this world is passing away. It's on its way to hell. We don't need a free ride. We don't need to hitchhike on, on, their, on their vehicle. We are supposed to be countering all of that. And every time we gather, whenever we say that Jesus alone is Lord, that counters everything that's in the world. Whenever we say the Bible is truth without any mixture of error, that counters what the world says. And so we are countering all of that and helping you not to get on the slippery slope of being like the culture. And by the way, churches that cater to all of that are doing it to their own destruction because what's cool today is awfully square tomorrow, isn't it? What's really in vogue today is really out of style tomorrow. How do you ever keep up with all of that? Well, you really can't. You really can't. And how do you survive in a culture that is rotting? How do you survive in the decay and in the garbage of the culture in which we live? Well, one of the ways you do it is because every time you come to church, we are the countercultural people. We are subversive. We are the ones that are saying to this world, you do not own us. You do not tell us what to do. And we say to the government, we ought to obey God rather than men. And we stand up for the truth. And so we're countercultural. We do have some aspects of the culture, but not all of it is sinful. But we don't want to be, and Paul didn't want them to be, what was typical for the people of Crete. And you and I should not be typical Americans either. You and I should not be going with the flow. We are going against it. We're on the narrow road, Jesus said. And the man-made fables and commandments of men and all of that, it may make them feel good, but it is not the way of God. And number four, church keeps you focused upon the cross and upon grace. This is, uh, verse 15 is um, one of those things that you have to think about. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. What is Paul saying there? It's the eyes through which you look at everything. I heard a guy say one time that when he came to church, this is before he got saved... He came and he would sexually fantasize about women in the choir. And there they are singing, holy, holy, holy. And what is he doing? Why? Because he is one of those that are defiled. And when you are defiled, you can't make anything right. You can't make anything pure. Everything's a little bit of a dirty joke. An innuendo. Double entendre, all that kind of stuff. And they'll find it anywhere and everywhere and the way to twist and pervert everything. You know anybody like that? You didn't say amen. You don't know anybody like that? I know some people like that. Why? Because when you're defiled, everything you touch, look at, talk about, or think about is defiled. Somebody put it like this. They said if sin were blue... 
then it would mean that everything we do is some shade of blue. It's all touched, it's all tainted, it's all dyed, so to speak, because of sin. But he says to the pure, all things are pure. The pure people have a different way of looking at things. They don't look at the perverse, the nasty, the dirty, the perverted. They don't look at all of that kind of things. They see good, holiness, godliness, purity. Why is that? Well, it's all because of one thing. You see, you and I are born with a nature against God. And because of that nature against God, we act on it. Our sin nature causes us to act sinfully, just like a dog nature causes him to bark, or a tiger nature, nature makes him a tiger. This is the way we are. And so everything is tainted and touched by sin. But here's the amazing thing. At the very beginning of this message, I told you about this God who sent his own son to save us from our sins, paid the penalty from our sins. And here's the wonderful thing. If you will believe in Jesus' work on the cross as the full payment for your sin and trust and believe that he was raised from the dead by the Lord and confess him as your Lord, something amazing happens. See, Jesus then becomes your king. Jesus becomes your life. Jesus becomes your standard. And he comes to live inside of you. And he gives you a new nature. And everything changes. And all of a sudden, you become pure. And you see things differently. This is telling us that when we come to church, after we've been exposed to everything on TV, everything on radio, everything that is in the world, everything in the workplace, man, we get muddy and we get dirty and we get defiled on all of that, but it's not really us. It's just like our shoes get messed up when we walk through the barnyard. When you come to church, there's a sense to when you are taking the hose and washing off your dirty boots after you've been in the manure of the corral. It's coming in and maybe washing that robe and cleaning it so when you put it on, it looks good. It's not stained. It smells good. There's something about church that helps you to kind of clean up. And the cleanup is not just by trying harder or doing better or making sure no one sees you. The cleanup is this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? That way you have pure eyes. And you can look at everything with purity and not with all the filth and dirtiness and the nastiness that goes on in this world. Because coming to church always reminds you you are who you are by grace not by your works. And through the work of Jesus Christ, not your silly rituals or ideas or anything like that. And God gives you then the power to become something. And that's where the, uh, the, the Puritans and the founders of our country said this, there's only one sovereign and that is God. And there is no king but Jesus. Think about that. Only one that is sovereign and that is God. And only one king, and that is Jesus. They didn't want King George or anybody else. They wanted Jesus to rule and reign. And that's the cry that we have every time we come to church. It's a reset that after you've been shoved around by your boss, after you've been messed with in society, after you've been lied to by the entertainment culture, after all of that happens, you come to what I'm so happy about that Kanye West has found, that Jesus is king. So what do you think about that? Well, like I do about you or anybody else. 
I can only take him at his word, and I'm trusting that God has touched his life. You know, the only thing I'm concerned about is people like you and me will make him some kind of a celebrity and set him up to fall. He's a baby Christian. He doesn't need to be in all of that, and yet we'll do that. So you pray for him. Pray for his family. Boy, they're messed up. They're messed up. And if indeed he's saved, how wonderful that God took somebody like that and put him in that family now so he can proclaim the gospel. So Jesus is king. He's exactly right. And that's what you and I do every time we come to church. The world's not the king. The culture's not the king. The devil's certainly not the king. There's one sovereign, and that is God, and one king, and that is Jesus. Because you see, the goal of this is to kind of get us down to that last verse. He said that we want you to be saved and live like it. Is that what he's saying? Well, he said they profess to know God, the false teachers, but in works they deny him. So what is the implication? God wants you and me to profess the right things, believe the right things, to hold to the right things, but he also wants it to change our lives so that we live the right things. You don't know how to be a parent, but Jesus does. You don't know how to be a good citizen, but Jesus does. You don't know how to be honest in all of your business dealings and even with the IRS, but Jesus does. You don't know how to look at the world and the news through pure eyes, but Jesus does. Because not everything is good in the world and not everything that even names the name of Jesus is good. So your doctrine has to be in order and all of those things that we've talked about. And that's what Paul says, that's the intent of the church. So here's my question. Number one, for those of you who are Christians who say Jesus is Lord when you come here and who sing the right songs and say amen at the right places, do your works back that up? Would anybody be surprised to find out that you're a believer? Is the Lord pleased that your life and your works match up? And then secondly, my question is this to those of you who have never trusted the Lord. You can try harder, and you can do better, and you can join the right clubs, and you can discipline yourself and never have peace in your heart. Because you're working on the external. Jesus, when he saves you, if you'll trust him, he changes your heart. He changes your life from the inside out. Will you be perfect? No, not in this life. But you'll be moving towards it day by day step by step and you'll be doing it in his power and with his favor you don't do it to gain his favor you do it because you already have his favor and when you fight battles and wars you don't fight for victory but from victory because you have new life in Christ and he lives in you and he won't even forsake you even when you mess up really bad because it's called grace the un deserved, unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. If you'll trust Him, if you'll surrender your heart to Him, if you will believe that He paid for your sin debt on the cross and is raised from the dead and you confess Him as your only King, your Lord and Master, He'll start working on you and it will be an inside job because He will be the one that does it. And when you mess up, there's hope because he won't abandon you and he'll fix it. And when you do right, 
All the glory and praise goes to him. And one victory leads to another victory. And as the old hymn says, From victory unto victory his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. What a day that's going to be, folks. And I want you to be a part of it. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, there are only two categories of people here today, lost and saved. And the lost need to trust Jesus. And I pray for the Holy Spirit to convict them and draw them to Christ today. And the saved, well, they need to live like it, but not just externally, but from their heart and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would touch both lost and saved for your glory and let the church be the church and touch these areas of life as we worship so that we can have impact on our families and on a lost and dying world and even on each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.